1: for Americans to grow up and become financially responsible. Let's talk about something important. If you're in it for the money, that's not a bad thing. Do you realize how much money he just saved us?
2: This is The
1: Financial Physician with Lou Skatigna. The Financial Physician. It's the fastest hour in Money Talk Radio.
3: It's also my pleasure to see to it the decent, hardworking people in
2: this community aren't robbed blind by a pack of money-mad pirates.
1: This is financial advice you can take to the bank. He's your money man. Show me the
2: Your source for straightforward, no-nonsense financial advice.
1: Bring me your money questions, because I'm here to help.
2: And now, here he is, the financial physician, America's money doctor, Lou Skatigna. Hello,
1: my friends. How are you? Welcome to the Financial Physician Radio Program. Lou Scatigna. here. We get together, well, up to this time, each and every Monday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time. But we are moving. Um, Big news. The show's moving next week to... Uh, Voice America's business channel which I think is probably the proper place for a show that talks about money and markets and we're going to move on Wednesday August 14th and we're going to be on each and every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time. So 4 in the afternoon Eastern Time, I guess that makes it 1 p.m. Uh, on the West Coast our live show and of course always archived on the thefinancialposition.com and right here uh, on voiceamerica.com so next Monday you won't be hearing us so uh, no worries, uh, we'll be just moving a couple days ahead to Wednesday, August fourteenth, and we'll be on at four p.m. And um, this is an advice show. And, and the whole idea when I came to Voice America from XM uh, was hopefully we're going to get a lot of calls. And you know that's the way my show has been over the fourteen years I've been doing radio. It's been a calling show, uh, locally in the New Jersey Shore here, uh, back-to-back phone calls giving advice mainly to senior citizens about their money and what to do with it. Uh, and then we were on XM. Uh, talk 168 for four years, and again, uh, giving uh, financial advice on markets and investments and taxes and things like that. And then we would try internet radio here, and the thing with internet radio, I'm finding anyway, at least in the the channel that we're on now and the time that we're on now, is uh, many people just listen to the archive version of the show. They don't listen to it live, and that's understandable. I mean who at 9 a.m. on Monday morning on the East Coast uh, has the time to listen to internet radio, or even worse, if it's 6 a.m. on the West Coast, I mean, nobody's going to listen live. People are getting ready to go to work and so forth. So I'm happy that I'm uh, moving to the afternoon uh, and on Wednesdays and on the Business Channel. We're going to be a featured show uh, on the Business Channel, again, starting this next uh, Wednesday, August 14th. Hopefully, you'll, you'll join us there. If you want to be part of our program here, eight six six four seven two five seven eight eight. Uh, is the call number. Now, let's talk about last week's economic news that came out. And there was a lot of it. We had uh, the Federal Reserve meeting uh, Tuesday and Wednesday and their statement. Uh, we had um, uh, second quarter GDP announced. And then we had the big one, which is always the biggest economic report of the month. And that was the July jobs report. So let's start with the July jobs report. And it kind of disappointed a lot of people. Uh 162,000 jobs were created in July. Uh, the survey of economists was somewhere in the neighborhood of uh, about 182 to uh, 200,000. So it was a disappointment, and it fell short on jobs created. But the unemployment rate dropped to 7.4%, and that sounds good, and of course – Everybody in the administration was touting this as such a great development. But the reason why the unemployment rate went down was because fewer people were looking for work. The participation rate went down. Now, the the unemployment rates dropped about, what, 2% from its high during uh, the crisis back in 2008, 2009. But there's fewer jobs today than there was then. So you say, how can the unemployment rate drop uh, two points and have less jobs out there? Because people are becoming discouraged and dropping out of the workforce. If there's less people actively looking for jobs, well, then the unemployment rate falls. And that's called the labor participation rate. And that's been dropping. Right now, uh, I think it's at a record low. It's 63.5%. So 63.5% of people in this country are either working or looking for jobs. So ironically, the unemployment rate drops as more and more people get discouraged and stop looking. But that's not what the administration nor the media would be reporting to you. The headline number is optimism as the unemployment rate drops. But really, this was a pretty dismal jobs report. You need 150,000 jobs to be created each and every month just to keep pace with uh, with, the growth of the job force, which is people coming out of college, people moving into the country, people becoming of work age. You need one hundred fifty thousand. That's population growth. That just keeps us at pace. We need two hundred fifty to three hundred fifty thousand jobs to really see the the economy growing and and the labor force really growing. So one hundred sixty two thousand is anemic. And what happened uh, shortly after that news came out is uh, yields dropped in the bond market. I'm going to talk about bonds in a little bit. How, how how important that market is and what's going on with interest rates, but. When uh, the job uh, report came out, people are saying, okay, now the Federal Reserve uh, will not be able to taper off their quantitative easing, their printing of money, their stimulus of the economy, their buying of bonds because the economy isn't so strong. So the jobs report is um, one of those reports that come out each and every month, and uh, you always have to take it with a grain of salt because uh, these numbers are fudged. We've said that number of times before. Uh, they revised lower the previous two reports, and that's another trick that they do. They come out with a number, and then they go back and revise that number um, a couple of months later. And I think they took 22,000 jobs out of May and June's report. And most likely, they'll revise this one down two in a month or two. Always shoot high and then revise down. Now, I haven't even looked into the the birth-death model, honest report, which I should have done, and for those of you who don't recall, the birth-death model is the estimate of how many jobs are created uh, by small businesses being started up or lost by small businesses being shut down. You never see losses uh, or rarely see losses in the birth-death model. And this is a number that the Bureau of Labor Statistics pulls out of thin air because there's no records of it. So they say, well, we thought 115,000 jobs were probably created by the establishment of small businesses. I don't know about you. I don't know a lot of people running out and starting a business right now. So, I mean, I think this number is dubious at best. So that makes basically the entire jobs report dubious at best because we don't know what's real and what's not. But the bottom line to it all is uh, the job market is bad. Many jobs being created right now are part-time jobs. And think about it. You know, we'll talk about Obamacare later on, and some of the things going on with that. But you know, if you are uh, an employer and you hire people full time and you have more than fifty employees, uh, then you uh, have to provide them with health insurance eventually, or or pay a penalty. And what companies are doing to position themselves ahead of the implementation of the employer mandate, which has been delayed a year, uh, is to not hire people full time. So the byproduct of Obamacare is really going to be less people working, at least less people working full-time. And the jobs that we're seeing being created now are part-time jobs. These are not good jobs. And if we look uh, even, uh, even deeper into this, we see that, what was it? Uh, let me look at my other page here. Uh, 47,000 jobs are added to uh, retail and food services. Mostly food service and at bars. 38,000 new jobs of the 47,000 in retail and food. So, I mean, if you're a bartender um, or a waitress, I guess that's good. But these are not high-quality jobs that are going to expand the economy. So you got to be careful when you hear the media come out and you hear the administration come out and try to say that the job market is improving. It's not. Part-time jobs being added is not improving the labor force or improving the economy. And those of you who are out there looking for jobs, you know what I'm talking about there. They're just not good jobs available, especially jobs with benefits. Let me tell you, that's going to become um, one of the the things that uh, are going to go away, is jobs with benefits. Because people are going to be hired part-time. We've seen it already happen with pensions. I mean, pensions have gone away unless you're a union or you work for the state or the federal government. Companies just are not offering pensions. They're offering 401Ks. People now are going to have to pay more for their health care insurance. Or they will just be hired part-time, and then the employer doesn't have to worry about it at all. Just hire somebody for 28 hours, and and you're done. And that's pretty much where we're going. So, I mean, the administration comes out and says the economy is improving. It's not improving. Let's move over to GDP. GDP. Uh, second quarter, this was the big news. The GDP came out for the second quarter. The first estimate um, expanded. The economy expanded at 1.7%. Substantially above estimates. The estimates were closer to 1%. So, you know, everybody got all excited about this. The economy is expanding better than better than thought, even though it's anemic at 1.7%. Well, that's better than the 1% we thought it was. But this, too, is an... Um, a number that gets revised. And if we look back, well, there was downward revisions to the past four quarters going backwards. Let's take the first quarter of this year. It was revised from 1.7% expansion, very similar to what was announced this week for the second quarter. And it was um, revised down to 1.1%. And the fourth quarter of 2012 was revised down to virtually no gains it was revised down to 0.1% growth uh, versus 0.4%, which was originally announced. Third quarter, down to 2.8% from 3.1%. So again, these numbers are not real. These numbers are not real, and they're going to be revised down. And they do it all the time. And, you know, Mark Twain once said, you know, he has a famous... um, saying he says that there are lies, damn lies, and statistics. Well, I think we could add uh, a fourth category to that, and that's government statistics. And more specifically, um, statistics that are put out by the Obama government. Now, he's not the only one to play around with economic numbers or his administration. It's happened in other administrations as well. But this administration takes it to Orwellian heights, as it does everything else. And they come out and they say, everything's great. Everything's improving. The the president's the policies are working. And, you know, that's the scary part about what's going on now. It's just they come out and lie to you all the time. And the majority of people believe the lie. And they know that most, you know, a good portion of people are going to know it's a lie. But if the majority believes the lie, it doesn't really matter. And that's propaganda. That's just simply what it is, is economic propaganda. And they'll continue to do it, and the mainstream media will continue to come out and report it with a positive spin. Many in the mainstream media were coming out with the jobs report. Unemployment fell to 7.4%. This is great. When they know that the reason why unemployment fell was because of people getting discouraged and leaving the job force. But again, it's part of the agenda. It's part of the narrative that they want you to believe that things are getting better. Got elections next year. That's an important thing. And then um, they delayed the employer mandate for Obamacare because they don't want anybody to see how bad that's going to be before the election. So we're being totally manipulated all the time. And I don't believe one thing that comes out of government as far as economic statistics go. You could always, always take it with a grain of salt and know that it's worse than it's being said. And spun. So two very, very important numbers came out. Very disappointing, both of them. Spun positively for the most part. And the stock market shrugs it off and goes to new record highs, which we'll talk about the stock market and the bond market after the break. 866 472 5788 is our phone number. You're listening to The Financial Physician. My name is Lou Scatigna. Don't go away. <laughs>
3: Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss.
4: We hear it and read about it every day in the news. Stock prices plunging, home prices receding, and unemployment growing. How can you preserve and increase your wealth in this kind of economy? Tune in to turning hard times into good times with host Jay Taylor. Jay will explain the decline of our monetary system and the economy and will give you winning investment ideas and the tools to protect and increase your wealth. Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor can be heard Tuesdays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel.
3: Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk.
2: You're listening to The Financial Physician. And America's money doctor, Lou Scatigna, is here to help you. Call with your questions now at 1-866-472-5788. That's toll free.
1: 1-866-472-5788.
2: Once again, here's Lou.
1: All right, the Financial Physician radio program is moving. We're moving days, times, and stations. We're moving over to the Voice America business channel as a featured show. And we're going to... Start our first show there next Wednesday. Not this Wednesday coming up, but a week from this coming Wednesday, August 14th uh, at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and uh, 1 p.m. on the West Coast. And, of course, always archived on thefinancialphysician.com, my website, or uh, voiceamerica.com. So looking really forward to moving over to the business channel. This is a show that really deserves to be on the business channel, and uh, uh, hopefully you'll follow us there or at least listen to the show. Uh, on our website. Also, my email address is Lou at the Financial Physician.com. Love your emails. Um, if you have any financial questions, comments on a program, things you want me to cover, uh, I'm happy to uh, respond to each and every email at Lou at the Financial com. And before the break, we're talking about the GDP uh, coming in at 1.7%. Uh, we talked about the, the non farm payrolls report for July coming in with a disappointing 162,000 new jobs created. Uh, of which was uh, the mainstream media was spinning it very positively because the unemployment rate dropped. But if you look under the cover, um, you will see that the unemployment rate dropped, as it has for the last couple of years, because the labor participation rate dropped, which is the number of people who are actively employed or looking for a job. And this includes people who are discouraged. They don't look for a job because they don't think they could find a job. Are they any less unemployed? No, they're still unemployed, but the way government statistics work, they're not counted as employed anymore and it makes the unemployment rate drop. To be honest with you, I'd be more comfortable with economic growth if I saw the unemployment rate going up, which would mean people are now coming out of the woods uh, and starting to look for jobs because they believe they can get them. So what we may want to see uh, you know, to really show some improvement uh, is uh, non-farm payrolls going up over 200,000 a month and the unemployment rate ticking up closer to 8%. I know it sounds perverse, but that's the way government statistics are right now. They're all totally perverse. And I said before, you know, I mentioned Mark Twain's quote, there's lies, damn lies, and statistics. And I said, you could add to that, you could add to that um, government statistics as the fourth one, which are, you know, probably the worst lies there possibly is. So uh, um, you can't trust anything coming out of Washington. That's the bottom line. You can't trust any government statistic that comes out. They're all lies. They're all massaged. They're all fudged in some different way. From GDP to employment to inflation, they're all, they're all massaged in a way to make it look better. And all you have to do is just live in this economy. Look for a job. Try to make ends meet. Go food shopping. Fill up your car. And you'll know what the economy is really like. Record number of young men living with their parents now. Kids coming out of college with tremendous amount of debt and no job opportunities. Oh, yeah, there's job opportunities. Uh, 47,000 jobs were created last month in food service and bars. So if you want to work at McDonald's, you probably could find a job. It won't be full-time, but you probably could find a job. The other big uh, news this week was the Federal Reserve has their meeting about every six weeks, and then they come out on Wednesday at around 2 o'clock, and they announce uh, – they make a statement, a written statement about interest rates in the economy, and uh, the markets hold their breath while this is happening and react to any word change that's in the statement. And back in June, the last meeting when the Fed came out, they announced that they may f- start tapering. That was the big, quote-unquote, big word of the day, tapering quantitative easing. Uh before year end, if the economy warrants it. And that's the thing about Fed statements. They, they talk out of both sides of their mouth. They say we could taper or we could expand it, depending on what the economic numbers are. And again, the economic numbers aren't truthful anyway, so I don't know how they can figure that out. So the bond market dropped in June big time. The U.S. Treasury bond yield for the 10-year Treasury went from 1.6 to 2.6 in a very, very short order which is a huge move in interest rates. I mean, think about it. What, 60%, 70% increase in interest rates on a 10-year bond in one month? And we're still stubbornly there. We're at 26 as we speak. Um, so the Fed tried to, to walk back that statement because they saw the stock market getting shaky. They saw the bond market cratering, and uh, they started talking that back. Some Fed governors came out and said, well, you know, uh, the economy doesn't look that great and, you know, I mean, maybe we won't taper till later on, and they started walking it back. The market, stock market regained its footing, went back to record highs, and the bond market, though, stubbornly stayed down and hasn't reacted to that. So everybody was wondering what the Fed would say on this meeting, uh, whether they're going to say that they're going to start tapering in September, as many people think they will. I don't. But they came out and they issued a 700-word statement on Wednesday. Uh, but for four words would have been fine. See you in September and see what they say that. And as expected, um, the Fed voted to uh, keep its interest rates at zero. Fed funds rate at zero to a quarter percent, virtually zero. Uh, try to induce job creation, which if part-time food service jobs is what he's trying to create, he's uh, being somewhat successful there. And uh, he's going to continue to buy $85 billion worth of mortgage bonds and treasury bonds every month with magically created digital paper, printed money through quantitative easing. And make no doubt about it. I mean, the quantitative easing has kept interest rates down. I mean, you create $85 billion and you buy bonds every month. I mean, you're going you're to keep a bid in the bond market and you're going to keep interest rates low. If it wasn't for the quantitative easing by the Fed, over the last four or five years, God knows where interest rates would be right now where the economy would be. So, I mean, the quantitative easing was necessary to prevent an implosion of the economy. But think about it. I mean, these trillions of dollars uh, that have been created and, and, and put into the bond market, into the economy, into banks, have done nothing to grow the economy. We had a 1.7% initial GDP, that's going to be revised lower most likely. 1% growth is no growth at all. Can you imagine what the economy would look like if the stimulus wasn't there? The only thing in the economy doing well is the stock market. And that's because it's the only game in town and because this $85 billion a month that's being printed is finding its way into stocks. The Fed comes to uh, the the big banks the J.P. Morgans and the Goldman Sachs of the world and buys bonds out of their inventory. These mortgage bonds are junk that are basically worthless. But the Fed pays full value for them. These banks now are flush with cash and they take it, they're not, they're not they're not lending it. They're either putting it back with the Fed and getting a quarter percent interest rate risk free, or they're putting it into the stock market and pushing the stock market up. And that's what we see going on now. The stock market's going on, and many people I know on Wall Street are shaking their heads and scratching their heads and saying the stock market should not be at record highs, given corporate earnings. Giving uh, guidance going forward, what the companies are saying about their businesses. Given the fact we have record people on food stamps and record poverty in America, how can the stock market be hitting record highs? People are scratching their head. And that's why I told you last week, uh, I'd get out of the market, that uh, a crash is coming. This is unsustainable. You can't sustain a stock market at these levels. When corporate earnings are shrinking, revenues are going down and guidance is going down. And if the Fed tapers – now, again, I don't think they're going to, but if the Fed stops buying as much bonds uh, and printing as much money as they have been, then uh, the stock market is going to go to hell very, very quickly, as will the bond market. And the problem with the market like now, you know, everybody's touting how great the stock market is, it's sucking in the public at the record high, at an unsustainable high, and they'll be fleeced as they always are. And as I said last week, I think a collapse in the market's coming. That's going to make 2008 look like nothing. And I believe that the risk in the stock market is the highest it's been since 2008. And I gave um, the heads up in uh, July of 2008 to get out of the market that a crash was coming. That the things that I watch, that I read, that I follow uh, was pointing right to that. And then the risk was so high of that happening. And just because the risk is high of something happening doesn't mean it happens. But the fact is, if the risk is high, you have to take evasive measures to protect yourself and your family. And that's why I'm telling people to get out of the stock market right now. The risk is very high. Now, let's talk about the bond market, which I think is more of an important market than the stock market. The treasury bond market is what you have to keep your eye on. Because the treasury bond market is telling us something. It's telling us that interest rates are going higher, obviously. It's also telling us that foreigners are no longer robust buyers of our treasury debt. As a matter of fact, they're net liquidators now. So far this year, the Federal Reserve has bought approximately 70 to 75% of all treasury debt issued. That's called monetizing the debt. Any country that's ever done that has ended with a currency collapse and hyperinflation. And I said when interest rates were 1.7, 1.8%, I said watch for two and a quarter to two and a half on the 10 year. Once we exceed that, we're in trouble. And as we stand today, we're at 2.6, we hit 2.7 something last week on a 10 year. And why is that important? Well, mortgage rates are tied to the 10 year Treasury bond. And we've seen mortgage rates go from about 3.5% in May to 4.4% today. Still historically low. But comparable to where it was just a few months ago. Not good. Mortgage rates go up. What happens to the housing market? It goes down. And another consideration is, you know, that people now are losing faith in the US dollar. And if foreigners lose faith in the US dollar because we're diluting it to the tune of eighty five thousand million a month, that's what eighty five billion dollars is, is eighty five thousand millions. And if they lose faith in the US. dollar, and Chinese have made it well known that they're very concerned about what the Fed's doing they' are net sellers of US. dollars. And um, many countries around the world, many industries, now are abandoning the dollar as a reserve currency, namely the oil market. And many of the BRIC countries, the emerging market countries, now are dealing with other countries uh, without using the U.S. dollar. And the reason why the dollar held up all this time is because it has been the reserve currency. So very, very ominous developments in the Treasury bond market. And we have to keep an eye on it. If we see Treasury yields on the 10-year go past 3%, I think it's going to take the stock market down with it. And I think we're very, very close to having that happen. I mean, we're 2.6 right now. It's only four-tenths of a percentage point. Now, and that's with the Fed buying $85 billion worth of bonds a month. So, you know, there's more selling than the Fed can buy right now. And if that gets out of control... Then we'll see rapidly rising interest rates, which will be a destruction to the fragile economy that we have right now, to the housing market, to the employment market. And keep in mind, the U.S. government has $17 trillion in debt. Uh, an increase in interest rate in treasury market means that we're paying more interest on that debt. And just 1% increase on $17 trillion is $170 billion a year. That will go towards debt service, interest service. And not be available to fund social programs, the defense department. And what will happen is the deficit will grow. And then the Fed will have to keep printing more money to fund the deficit. See, it's a a vicious cycle here. Rising interest rates is the end. Is the end of what we know as uh, the U.S. economy as we've known it. Because of the extent of debt that not only the government has, The federal government, cities, we see cities going under. Detroit's the the most recent to file bankruptcy, and they're just the beginning of it. Rising interest rates is the death knell to the economy and the stock market and the bond market. So we have to keep a good eye on interest rates. Forget what the stock market does. The stock market is doing a levitation act. Again, all markets are manipulated, but um, but the stock market, pay no attention to the stock market. Pay attention to the 10-year treasury yield. Put on CNBC every day and look at the 10-year treasury yield. If it goes over 3%, we're in big trouble. All right, time for a break. 866-472- 5788 is our phone number if you want to be part of the program. My name's Lou Skatikny. You're listening to The Financial Position right here on voiceamerica.com.
3: Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank
4: you for calling.
3: VoiceAmerica.com. Tune into Around the World in a Glass, presented by Sportsman's. We're a show all about wine, spirits, and other beverages. Your host, Kimber Stonehouse, is a professional expert and wine enthusiast. Each week, we'll focus on a different region of the world, discuss wines and other beverages, talk about some of the top restaurants in the region, and what to pair with which wine. Just listening could make you almost an expert. Around the World in a Glass is heard live every Wednesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Talk, talk, talk.
1: On The Financial Physician, we don't just cover the good time financial news. We cover the good, the bad, and the ugly.
2: Have a question for America's money doctor, Lou Scatigna? Call him now at 1-866-472-5788. Or email the show. Here's the address, lou at thefinancialphysician.com. Now, back to Lou.
1: All right, before the break, I was talking about the importance of the bond market, the treasury bond market, especially, in the 10-year treasury note and and, um, the yield on it, which has gone up quite substantially uh, just since June when the Fed mentioned the word taper, that they may stop uh, or at least slow down some of their money printing and bond buying, and it really unnerved the bond market. And the bond market has been totally supported by the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve's $85 billion that's being printed is going into the bond market and supporting yields and have kept yields at historic lows. I mean, ten years ago, even five years, uh, five years ago, maybe eight to ten years ago, if you would have told almost anybody on Wall Street that the ten-year bond would yield as low as 1.4%, they'd think you're nuts. If anybody uh, was told eight to ten years ago that money market rates are going to be zero and that CDs will pay two-tenths of one percent, people would think you're nuts. But these interest rates are, have been here because the Fed has panicked After the crash of 2008, and is really what they're what they're really trying to do is to recapitalize the banks. That's really what they're doing here, by taking off their balance sheet bad mortgage loans, giving them fresh capital, having them put that capital at the Federal Reserve uh, on deposit, and getting a quarter of one percent free interest. That's a nice deal. Just remember, the Federal Reserve is there for the banks. It's not there for you and me and the federal reserve is nothing federal. Federal Reserve Bank is private. It has nothing to do with the US government. And answers to nobody. Very powerful organization the Federal Reserve. Affect everything. And number 1 they're there for the bankers because they are the banks own the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve is a very nefarious organization. And you should read the book, um, The Creature from Jekyll Island. It's a book about the formation of the Federal Reserve and what their mandate is. And the Federal Reserve is 100 years old this year. It's formed in 1913. And supposedly their mandate is to keep inflation low and employment high. But their mandate really is to make sure that the banks make as much profit as possible. And everybody's got to be aware of that. Just think about what the Fed has done by putting interest rates at 0%, where CD rates are paying nothing, where money market rates. What have they done? They've just stolen income from savers. They've stolen the income from savers to put forth their pro-banking agenda. And I feel bad for for the senior citizen out there who's conservative, who saved a lot of money and now was hoping to live about 4 or 5% interest in the bank, and now earn nothing. While at the same time, the cost of living is skyrocketing. Not by the CPI terms, but by the living terms. So the Fed uh, really is a nefarious organization for the banks, for themselves, and are basically raping the public, and there's nothing federal about the Federal Reserve. And everybody hails Ben Bernanke as a hero. oh, maybe he is because because he's kept it together. After they tried to destroy it, the banks, he came in and bailed them all out, including the taxpayers bailing them out. And and, uh, they're making their bonuses. They're doing well. Uh, We have record stock prices. And meanwhile, the people on Main Street can't find a job. Oh, yes, they can find a job as a bartender or food service at McDonald's, part-time. Let's shift gears a little bit. Um, big news last couple of weeks about Obamacare. As we're getting closer and closer to the implementation date, uh, people are starting to be uh, a little concerned about what's really in this bill. 3,000-page document with a lot of leeway. I mean, everything that's going to happen is not in the bill. It gives a lot of leeway to uh, Health and Human Services to decide the regulations. The regulations aren't in the bill, just the, the broad Issues, So there's a lot of freedom by the administration to do whatever they want with a lot of this. And it was announced uh, a couple of weeks back on a Friday afternoon just before a holiday weekend uh, that the Obama administration would unilaterally uh, delay the employer mandate one year. Now, the employer mandate is where the employer, if he has 50 employees or more, working over 28 hours or 29 hours, uh, has to give health care coverage to their employees or face a penalty, a tax or penalty, whatever you want to call it. So there was obviously a lot of concern within the business community. And uh, the Obama administration decided to give them another year before they have to do this. Okay, but there's a second part to Obamacare, and that's the individual mandate, where individuals have to get their own insurance if they don't work for a company, or pay a fine. Now, there is um, KC Research is one of the websites I read, and there was a um, an article written by a by a, a doctor about Obamacare, and he goes on to uh, she goes on to uh, uh, explain what it really means. And she warns that the delay of the employer mandate by one year will force Americans into the single-payer system, raising insurance premiums and encouraging liar subsidies that might prove fiscally devastating. Not to mention that under the new health care system, you may well end up dead. So she has a good explanation here in this article, and I'm going to put it up on my website, about what Obamacare really is. Because none of us really know. I mean, you got to pass the bill to know what's in it. It's thousands of pages and so forth. We still don't know. But as we're getting closer to implementation, we're starting to know. Obamacare is a hodgepodge of new regulations, requirements, and penalties. Now, she defines the three terms, which, while obscure today, uh, should begin to enter your everyday vocabulary as Obamacare continues to take effect. First one, health insurance exchanges are the basket of qualified insurance policies that meet the new health care law requirements for expanded coverage. These may be set up by the states. Many are refusing to do so due to the high cost and a fear of bankrupting the state or the federal government. The exchanges are supposed to be fully operational by October of 2013. That's this year. Uh, but it is questionable whether they will actually be in place by that deadline. So we'll see if they delay that as well. The individual mandate requires that individuals purchase health insurance that meets the new expanded federal requirements. Individuals who do not comply face a financial penalty. Individuals who fall below minimum income levels will be eligible for taxpayer-funded subsidies to buy health insurance. Now, keep this in mind. This is a key key, key thing here to Obamacare is that low-income people, and it's not that low, will be eligible for taxpayer-funded subsidies to buy health insurance. Now, the employer mandate requires that businesses with more than 50 full-time employees must provide health insurance for all employees and that insurance must meet the new standards set forth in a new law. Businesses that do not comply must pay a financial penalty for each employee, which for large companies can run into millions of dollars annually. And this is the piece of Obamacare that was delayed by one year. And, of course, it's not just an insurance policy. It has to have minimum standards, which are pretty high. These are pretty good plans, which are going to cost a lot of money for the individual mandate and also the employer mandate. Now, keep in mind, the employer mandate has been delayed a year, but the individual mandate is going to start this year. So why delay one component of Obamacare and not the others? More specifically, why delay the employer mandate but not the individual mandate is her question. And to answer that question, we must first understand this fact that Obama wants a single-payer health care system in the United States. This is not a secret. In 2003, Barack Obama said, and I quote, I happen to be a proponent of a single-payer health care system for America, but as all of you know, we may not get there immediately. Barack Obama in 2007, quote, but I don't think we'll be able to eliminate employer-based coverage immediately. There's potentially going to be some transition time. These quotes are not taken out of context. Anyone who's been paying attention knows that transitioning to a single-payer system has been Obama's and his cohort's ultimate goal all along. Here's a, um, a quote from a Jacob Hacker, who's a Yale professor. He stated this in 2008. Quote, someone once said to me, this is a Trojan horse for a single-payer. It's not a Trojan horse, right? It's right there, I'm telling you. We are going to get there. Over time, slowly, but we're going to move away from reliance on employer-based health insurance, as we should, but we will do it in a way that we are not going to frighten people into thinking they're going to lose their private insurance. We will give them a choice of public or private insurance when they're in the pool. We are going to let them keep their private insurance as long as their employer continues to provide it. Hacker nicely sums up the underlying goals of Obamacare, not to increase competition or patient choice, but to drive people out of private insurance as a stepping stone to a government-run single-payer system. Knowing Obama and his cohort's goals, the purpose behind the delay of the employer mandate seems clearer. To hurry the transition time away from employer-based health insurance and to a single-payer system. By forcing individuals to purchase compliant health care plans but not forcing employers to provide those plans, Obama is creating a swell of 10 to 13 million workers that must enroll in health insurance but cannot obtain it from their employers. These workers thus have no choice but to use the government controlled health insurance exchanges or else pay a financial financial penalty. This represents a doubling of the number of workers forced to get health insurance on the exchanges. Importantly, the IRS has ruled that if workers have access to affordable health insurance through their employer, their dependents are not eligible for taxpayer funded subsidies on Obama health insurance exchanges. Now that businesses will not be required to offer insurance until 2015, workers and their dependents will be eligible for taxpayer-funded subsidies to purchase health insurance on the exchanges. This will cost taxpayers an estimated $60 billion in 2014 alone to cover the increased cost of the subsidies and the loss of revenue from the employer penalties. This $60 billion figure is before we take into account quote-unquote liar subsidies, That will invariably occur now that the administration has quietly removed eligibility verification for taxpayer-funded subsidies. You don't even have to prove that you're poor and need the taxpayer-funded subsidies. Listen to to this again. The administration has quietly removed eligibility verification for taxpayer-funded subsidies. They want people in there. Community organizers are already being hired around the country to sign people up for the health exchanges. There are no penalties for failing to verify eligibility and no penalties for signing up people who cannot afford to pay the monthly insurance premiums. It is set up for disaster, such as such like the liar loans that help topple the mortgage industry when people are not required to verify their income to qualify for a mortgage. Remember, by enacting the dual mandates, Obamacare ostensibly has designed to ensure that the costs were borne by businesses, not taxpayers. But when the president decided to enforce only certain portions of the health care law and delay others, he shifted the cost of health insurance onto the backs of taxpayers. That's what we have happening here, ladies and gentlemen. This is a ploy to get more and more people into government-controlled exchanges. And meanwhile, private insurance premiums are going to rise 20 to 60% in 2014, and some as much as 100%. This is a disaster, but it's a calculated disaster to go to socialized medicine, and that's where we're headed. More after the break on Obamacare and some of these really nefarious ways they're going about it. I mean, it's really, really intense. Wait till I tell you more about this. You won't believe it. All right, 866 472 5788 is our phone number. We have one more segment left in the program. You're listening to The Financial Physician right here on VoiceAmerica.com. Don't go away. News. 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 Opinion.
3: Opinion. Opinion.
4: is heard Wednesdays at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. Each week, Jimmy Gould brings you the stories and the people that you want to hear about.
1: There should be mandatory personal finance courses taught in both high school and college.
2: You're listening to The Financial Physician.
1: Financial illiteracy is the number one reason the average American has little or no net worth.
2: America's Money Doctor, Lou Skatigna, is here to help you now. Give him a call at 1-866-472-5788. That's toll free.
1: 1-866-472-5788.
2: Now, back to Lou.
1: All right, we're talking about Obamacare the train wreck that's known as Obamacare and uh, how it's starting to be implemented it's going to start this October and uh, we're talking about uh, an article that was written by a doctor that it's an expert on Obamacare and and she, she goes on to say that the reason why the president delayed the employer mandate one year but not the individual mandate to get health insurance is to get these people that would have had health insurance by their employer. you got to understand, it. if the employer was mandated to give me health insurance because I work for the company, then I don't have to pay for it, right? I'm getting it from my employer. Uh, I may have to kick in for some of it, whatever. That's on an individual basis. But I would have health insurance. Now, since the employer doesn't have to give it to me for a year, I'm still mandated to have health insurance. So I have to now go out and buy health insurance or be penalized and most likely, I'm going to have to go to one of these exchanges and get into government-run health care, government-funded health care. And the reason for the dual mandate of, of, of the employer mandate and the individual mandate for those who didn't have an uh, employer with 50 employees or more was to share the burden between taxpayers and businesses uh, for health care coverage. By delaying this one year, they're throwing 13 million people now into the government side of healthcare. care. And what she says in this article is that it's the plan all along to get one single-payer system and to bring people in here. And the most incredible thing about it is there's no eligibility verification to get these subsidies by the government to get health insurance on the exchanges. You don't have to prove it, which just blows my mind. It's like going on food stamps but not having to prove how much money you make. It's crazy. And meanwhile, we're seeing private insurance plans – rise between 20 and 60% next year, and some as much as 100%. Now, I have uh, Horizon Blue Cross Blue Shield in New Jersey here, and I have a group plan. My plan has gone up 50% the last two years since Obamacare has passed, not even instituted yet. It's outrageous the amount of money that we're paying per month per family for health care insurance. And it's being predicted to go up as much as 100% from there. It's crazy. It's really prohibitively expensive. And and, and the, the, the government's exchanges are going to undercut private insurance companies. And how long will private insurance markets survive with with, with such exploding cost and competition? People aren't going to be able to, to, to afford the massive premium increases that the, the insurance companies are going to have to do to, to keep solvent – and uh, people are going to go into the arms of the government control system, and that's exactly what they want. Uh, Jeff Smith, the guy from Seattle, summed it up nicely in the Wall Street Journal letter on June 12th. This is what he said. I was going to leave my job to start a business until I shopped around for a health care plan. At Group Health, a health maintenance organization in Seattle, I was given a quote of $842 per month for me and my family. But that would increase to 23,20 a month starting in January 2014, when Obamacare kicks in, a 276 percent increase. Why? Because I would be forced to carry coverage I don't want and don't need, such as maternity care. Welcome to the world of socialized medicine courtesy of the Unaffordable Care Act. And that's what this is. For many people, it's just unaffordable to pay for this insurance. The delay in the employer mandate is but one of dozens of negative impacts Obamacare will have on your medical services. As an independent physician, I've been discussing these issues with my patients for the past few years, helping them to prepare for what's ahead. Here are the 10 most important points that I tell my patients. Again, this is a doctor who's an expert at Obamacare and what's coming. One, your private insurance premiums will cost more and more each year. Two, you will lose the choices and flexibility in health insurance policies that we've had up until now. Three, as reimbursements continue to drop, fewer and fewer doctors will take Medicare for those 65 and older or Medicaid people younger than 65. And they're doing that now. Doctors now are not taking on any new Medicare patients or Medicare patients. They're not getting reimbursed enough from the government. They're not going to work for free. Fewer doctors uh, are accepting Medicare and Medicaid causes. Uh, fewer doctors accepting Medicare and Medicaid causes an increase in wait times for appointments and a decrease in the numbers and types of specialists available on these plans. Studies from various organizations and states have consistently shown that Medicaid recipients have longer waits for Medicare medical care. Fewer options for specialists, poorer medical outcomes, and die sooner after surgeries than people with no health insurance at all. Yet an increasing number of Americans will be forced into the second-class medical care. Six. As more people enter the taxpayer-funded plans, Medicare or Medicaid, instead of paying for private insurance, the cost to provide these increased medical care and medications will escalate, leading to higher taxes. Seven. With no eligibility verifications in place, millions of people who are in the United States illegally will be able to access taxpayer-funded medical services, making longer lines, longer wait times, and less money available for medical care for American citizens, unless taxes are increased even more. Illegal immigrants. We're going to pay for their health insurance. It boggles the mind. It boggles the mind. What does the word illegal mean? That's politically incorrect now. I don't think you could say illegal. You can't say that. Eight, higher expenditures to provide medical services lead to rationing of medical care and treatment options to reduce costs. This is the mandated function of the Independent Payroll Advisory Board the Independent Payment Advisory Board, to cut costs by deciding which types of medical services to allow or disallow. If you are denied treatment, you have no appeal of IPAB decisions. You are simply out of luck and possibly out of life. This is a radical departure from the appeals process required for all private health insurance plans. Further, the IPAB is accountable only to President Obama and cannot be overridden by Congress or courts. The IPAB is designed to have the final word on your health. And under current regulations, if medical care is denied by Medicare, then a patient is not allowed to pay cash to a Medicare-contracted physician or hospital or other health professional. Patients who need medical care that is denied under Medicare or Medicaid will find themselves having to either look for an independent physician or hospital, quite rare these days, or go outside the U.S. for treatment and expect the loss of medical privacy beginning in 2014 if you participate in government health insurance your health records will be sent to a centralized federal database with or without your consent so that's obamacare and it's explained very well in this article by this doctor and this is what's coming your way and the delay of the employer mandate is to move us quicker to a one-pay system are right, out of time it goes so fast here on the financial position remember we're moving Next week, August 14th to Wednesday, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Business Channel. There'll be no show here on the Variety Channel next week. Remember my website, thefinancialphysician.com. My email is lou at thefinancialphysician.com. Have a wonderful week, and please join me next week for the next edition of The Financial Physician.